past year or so, I've become interested, passionate, and my wife might say obsessed about cider. If you've never really explored cider, which is fermented apple juice or what some might call hard cider, it's every bit as complex as fine wine and the variety and diversity of ciders is really unmatched by wine, beer, or really any other category out there. We're really lucky today to be joined by arguably the nation's preeminent cider scientist, Dr. Greg Peck. We are seeing huge, huge emergence of craft cider producers, local cider producers opening up throughout the United States. And so this is super exciting. And they're feeding off of things like the wine trails. They're feeding off of people wanting an agritourism experience. They're becoming a really important part of our rural communities, these these cider producers. In today's episode, we talk about the tremendous growth in the cider industry that's happened over the past decade, how it mirrors in some ways what the wine industry went through in the 70s, and some things to consider if, like me, you might want to break into this budding industry. All that and more on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, Ag Nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, today is an episode I've been really excited about for a long time because it combines three of my biggest passions. Of course, this podcast, but also cider and tree crops. It's going to be part history of apples and cider, part analysis of the growing cider industry, and part personal indulgence of asking an expert if I'm crazy to dream of one day owning my own orchard-based cider company. First, though, I'd like to take a minute to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor of the podcast, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and ag technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you're welcome to join. Visit CalgaryAgBusiness.com to learn more. Make sure you go check that out and the exciting things happening up there in Calgary. Thanks so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, back to today's episode with pomologist and cider expert, Dr. Greg Peck. Greg is an associate professor in the School of Integrative Plant Sciences at Cornell University. His research addresses the challenges of sustainably and profitably producing tree fruits and he's conducted research in fruit crop production systems in California, Washington, New York, and Virginia. He really has become a leader and expert in cider in the U.S. and received the American Cider Association's 2018 Grower Advocate of the Year Award. As I'm sure you could already tell, this episode is selfish for me in a lot of ways. As a hobbyist cider maker and someone who's planted about a dozen or so apple trees this past year, but there's some really great stuff in here that touches on things like history of agriculture, the importance of local agritourism and local economies, wine, climate change, and even some farm economics. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode with Dr. Greg Peck. 
another way of thinking about what I do or describing what I do is that I'm a pomologist. So a pomologist is a scientist who studies poem fruit. And the most well-known poem fruit, of course, are apples. But pears, quince, or other types of poem fruits, and pomologists study other types of fruit as well. So what we call stone fruit, and these are the prunus species, includes cherries, peaches, nectarines, but also almonds, where instead of removing the pit and not eating it, the pit has the seed and the seed is the almond nut, that's a prunus species. And pomologists can also study other cropping systems, nut crops, walnuts, pistachios, and small fruits as well, raspberries, strawberries. So I'm one of them. I'm a pomologist. And within the realm of pomology, my specific research interest is in sustainable production systems. So I spent much of my graduate education and really the first segment of my career studying things like organic agriculture, organic apple production specifically. We looked at a lot of things. How do we manage weeds? How do we manage nutrients? How do we manage the number of apples on the tree, which is crop load management in an organic system? And with uh, the advent of the growth of the cider industry in about 2010, I started doing a little bit of work in hard cider. And now hard cider research is probably about 80% or so of my research program. And I think a lot of people don't know how diverse the apple tree is. I mean, how many different varieties? And I mean, we could do the whole hour just on that, obviously, and barely scratch the surface. But can you maybe kind of sum it up for somebody who really has no concept of like, oh, yeah, I know there's golden, you know, delicious and there's red delicious and there's Granny Smith, you know, they, they could think of the ones at the grocery store, but that doesn't even that's not even the tip of the iceberg, right? It is not. Well, maybe it is the very, very tip of the iceberg, but, you know, it's the um, the submerged part of the iceberg, which gets really fascinating. Right. So let's go big picture first. Right. So apples are in the rosaceae family, the rose family. There's a lot of genera in the rose family, including malice, which is the genus of apples. So roses, right? Rose bushes are in there. The prunus species I mentioned earlier. There's dozens and dozens of different genera within the rose family. But malice is one genus. And within the genus of malice, there's somewhere between 25 and 35 different species. Taxonomists are always kind of lumping and splitting exactly how many. And there's a lot of hybridization that happens among these species. Now, for us as consumers of apples, the type of apple that we eat is malice domestica. So the domesticated apple. And in fact, it's a hybridized apple and it's hybrid between Malus severcii, which is the wild apple of what is now Kazakhstan. And then it was hybridized with Malus sylvestris, which is the European crab apple. And there's some other species that have some genetic component in our modern domestic apple as well, but those two make up the majority of the genetics. So it's actually the apple that we eat and that you buy in the supermarket is in fact a human creation. And actually, you know, whether it was intentional or natural hybridization, it happened because of the Silk Road. And as humans were transporting goods from the eastern part of Eurasia to the western part of Eurasia and back and forth, they brought those apples along and those seeds 
grew and trees grew, and then there's cross-pollination and, and hybridization happened. So advanced thousands of years, maybe hundreds of years to thousands of years, and you get this huge diversity of different varieties of Malus domestica. Okay, so these are the ones that we have names for. And you mentioned a few. The American market for apples, when I was growing up in the 80s and even into the early 90s, it was pretty limited, right? We had three types of apples in the supermarket, red, green, and yellow, right? We had Red Delicious, Granny Smith, and Golden Delicious. And it was pretty limited, but that's really changed, right? You go to a lot of supermarkets now, and you'll find a dozen or so different types of apple varieties being sold, right? Famously, Honeycrisp came on the market and really changed consumer expectations for what an apple could be. And that's because of the, the crunch that it has, right? Or the crisp that Honeycrisp has. And it has a very unique texture and really got people excited to eat apples again after, you know, many, many decades of eating apples that were fine, but not fantastic. And so if you think about what is the diversity of apples out there, there are 15, 20,000 varieties that have been described in books. Um, there's probably even many more that were just a wild seedling in somebody's backyard. Maybe it got a name, maybe it didn't, but it just grew up and it became something of importance to somebody at some time. So the diversity of Malus domestica is immense and it's and it's pretty exciting because we have this collection, this germplasm collection of apples. It's run by the USDA and it's located in Geneva, New York. And I can walk up and down those rows and taste all these different flavors, flavors that you can't even imagine an apple would taste like. And it's fantastic. So the diversity of apples is really exciting. I get really excited about it because it really can showcase what a single species, in this case, a hybridized species can do. Okay. Well, and so far we've been kind of putting this in a dessert apple, we might call it, like an apple we get at the grocery store context, because that's easiest for people to relate to. Uh, but what I really want to talk about is is cider. And, we, and when I say cider, for those of you listening, I don't mean the drink you would pick up at the grocery store that's basically just apple juice that may be a little bit more cloudy. I mean fermented apple juice. So what some people might call hard cider in the US, but the rest of the world just calls it cider. And let's put it in that context as far as the the varieties that are out there that are ideal or, or suited, I should say, for cider. And let's maybe talk about the, the apple diversity and a little bit of background on cider itself. Sure. The apples that we use for cider production, and again, just as you said, fermented apple juice are really as diverse as the apples that we eat. And all apples contain some level of sugar. And so to make an alcoholic product, you have sugar plus yeast, which are the microbes that convert sugar to ethanol and CO2. And then you have a fermented product, right? They result in the alcohol, the ethanol. Now, with that said, there are a number of types of apples that are being grown and have been grown traditionally in many parts of the world that were specifically selected for cider production, for hard cider production. 
And so these typically have a high concentration of either sugar, right? Again, for the alcohol, acid, which gives it a sharpness or a sourness, or tannins, which can give either a bitterness or astringency to the finished product. And uh, cider, you know, traditionally, is it European based? I mean, did it really kind of come to uh, popularity in the UK? Well, cider has a really long history that dates back to Roman times. And the Romans loved wine, don't get me wrong, right? They loved their grape-based wines. But as they started to move northward and into areas of Europe that were really not conducive for growing the European wine grape, they came across peoples that were growing apples, either collecting foraged fruit, perhaps even cultivating trees, and then making cider out of that. And so the Romans, the evidence is that they spread that from Western parts of Europe throughout the rest of Northern Europe that they visited and that they were going to. So England, or really the United Kingdom overall, is the number one market for cider today. It has been for a long time. A huge percentage of the global production and consumption of cider happens in the United Kingdom. And their climate, pre-climate change, and you know things are starting to shift for them in some respects to this, but pre-climate change, not conducive for growing European wine grapes. They don't get enough heat and they can't get the sugar content and they could not make as much wine as they wanted to drink. And so, you know, we, we know that there was a lot of wars between England and France and wine was often part of the battlefield tools, right, that would be used. Maybe not battlefield, but certainly the, the tools being used to um, say, hey, well, you know, the French were like, well, we're not going to ship any more wine to you. And so England in different points in history would make quite a bit of cider and invest a lot of resources into that to be able to make alcohol. And I understand the popularity spread to the U.S. pre-prohibition. Is that right? Where cider was a very popular drink in the U.S. and uh, didn't recover after prohibition the way that maybe some other drinks did. So in the United States, it's a similar story, right? So the first Europeans that came to the eastern United States, they did try to grow these European wine grapes, Vitis vinifera. And failed. And they tried and they failed, they tried and they failed. Eventually found out that it was because the European wine grapes were susceptible to a pest that was native to the United States called phylloxera. And it's kind of this uh, root aphid that would destroy the, the plant, kill the plant. And so those European wine grapes all died. And there were some climatic issues too, right? A lot of the first colonies were in the mid-Atlantic and south, and it was just too warm for a lot of the varieties that they were trying to grow. But they could grow apples, they were apple trees. And so of course, similar to the story of cider becoming a big deal in England, it became a big deal in the American colonies. And really throughout the 17 and 1800s, cider was fairly common throughout a lot of agricultural communities. Like when we think about 
cider or wine or beer being sold now, we think about a business operating specifically to make that product and then selling it either you know on site or off site. I think in the early days or really even through the 1800s in America that the production of cider was largely localized like a lot of farms would have their own apple trees. Some of those apple trees may have tasted horrible to eat fresh, but they would make them into cider. And so they, you know, it's pretty common for most producers, most farmers to put up a few barrels of cider, even if it was just kind of like, like what they would do in terms of preserving other foods to make it through the winter. Now, after prohibition, cider just fell off the radar in the United States. And part of that was because people pointed their finger at it as being, this is, you know, a cause of all of these societal ills. But I think probably some stronger factors that play into that are that we had a lot of immigrants coming from places such as Ireland and Germany. So these are beer drinking people and they wanted beer. And beer also is made from barley, a grain. And so there's a big difference between a fruit like an apple, which is perishable, needs to be stored in cold temperatures. Really, for the most part, for cider production, it needs to be milled and pressed right after harvest versus a grain like barley, which has a very long shelf life and fairly easy to transport. So we had a change at the same time, you have immigrants coming in, and we also had an, an internal domestic change in our population, right? We went from a very rural agricultural society, and we were becoming more and more urbanized in the early 1900s. So we point our finger a lot at prohibition as being like the downfall of the cider industry, but it was just one part of the story. And really these kind of large scale demographic changes in our population were also happening. So people wanted beer, beer was easier to make, easier to transport, easier to store. People wanted to drink in urban areas so they could have breweries in urban centers, a lot harder to have a large scale cider producer in an urban area. And then I think also after prohibition, one of the things that the government created was this three-tier system of alcohol distribution, where you had the producer, the distributor, and the retailer. And you had to go from producer to distributor to retailer. You couldn't bypass the distributor. A lot of those distributors ended up being very large companies, corporations. Some of them had their starts during prohibition. These are the people who were controlling the alcohol market during prohibition and then were also controlling alcohol after. And so like a lot of products, the more centralized that you can make them and the more control that one entity can have over it, the more profit they make. So all of these contributed to beer becoming widely available, the choice of American alcohol consumers and wine and cider both really fallen off the radar at that time. And then at some point, you know, wine kind of um, woke up, I guess you could say, I mean, it really started to take off. And I understand that's kind of what we're seeing here in the past you know, decade or two with cider. So maybe let's talk about that. What, what has happened with cider 
And, um, you know, if you can draw some comparisons to what happened with wine. In the 1970s, American wine started to gain, you know, a prominence and, and gain market traction. We had the Tasting of Paris, we had Mondavi, you know, beating these famous French producers and really showing that American wine could hold its own and could make them excellent quality wines. And from there, it grew, right? Napa Valley, Sonoma um, Valley, and then from California onward. And now there's wine production throughout many states in North America, including New York. There's cold weather, cold climate wine production. We grow a lot of Riesling, for example, in the Finger Lakes, which is where, where I'm based with Cornell University. And now wine is a huge, huge industry. Cider didn't really pick up that same market presence until about 2010. And there were cideries, there, there's no doubt. There were people making hard cider, both commercially and certainly a lot of amateur, you know, home brewer types who were making cider in those intervening years between Prohibition and 2010. However, it wasn't really until about, you know, a little over a decade ago that the cider industry started gaining traction. What was it exactly? It's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, uh, the novelty of it, people interested in something new became niche. Uh, people interested in an agricultural product, people looking for gluten-free products, right? Beer has gluten in it. Wine and cider do not. There's a lot of marketing from 2010 to 2015. And you still see it to some extent of this cider is gluten-free. Well, of course it's gluten-free, right? There's no there's no gluten in apples. But all of that, you know, kind of came together to help gain traction. And then we had also around that time, 2010, 2011, we had what is still the largest cider producer in the country come online. And so that's Angry Orchard. And Angry Orchard is owned by Boston Beer Company. Sam Adams, of course, is their beer line. They also have hard seltzer and they have hard lemonade. They have other product lines as well. But uh, they saw the market opportunity and they had the distribution channels. They knew how to get beer to all of these marketplaces throughout the United States. And they were able to use that distribution network to get Angry Orchard out there. And they quickly went from a new company to owning 60 plus percent of the market share. And they've actually maintained that pretty well for over the last decade. But while they are 60% of the market, you know, there's probably another 20, 25% that's made up of number two through 10 in terms of size of their business. But then there's everybody below that. And that's number 11 through 1000 plus, right? So we are seeing a huge, huge emergence of craft cider producers, local cider producers opening up throughout the United States. And so this is super exciting. And they're feeding off of things like the wine trails. They're feeding off of people wanting an agritourism experience, going out for a day trip from an urban area to, you know, where they used to make go apple picking. They might still go apple picking, but now they go and go cider tasting as well. They're becoming a really important part of our rural communities, these, these cider producers. Right. Yeah, I think that's one fascinating thing about cider. Well, a few things that you said are really fascinating. Number one, the Angry Orchard thing makes a lot of sense to me of being a, a big catalyst, uh, not only because they have a major market share, but if you go to any 
random bar and you ask for cider, and I've realized this in the past year where I've really become just passionate about cider, they'll say, well, we have Angry Orchard and just say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll have Angry Orchard. And so like that's introducing a lot of people who would not have access in, in a situation like that to cider to tasting it for the first time. And then, of course, like anything else, you go, oh, that was pretty good. And you find others. And then you go down this rabbit hole that you mentioned includes over a thousand different cideries. And to give us an idea, how many cideries were there, you know, 12 years ago in 2010 versus today? Oh, boy. I, you know, I, I forget the exact number. It was really small. It was, um, you know, in New York, for example, we went from less than 10 to we're up over 125 now in the state. And so I get asked this a lot. And I work a lot with the commercial cider producers. And I work a lot, of course, as a pomologist. Again, I work very closely with the apple growers who grow the fruit for the cider industry. And some of them are vertically integrated, right? They, they grow the fruit, they make the cider. Some of them are just growing fruit to sell to cideries. And so I get asked a question a lot of, well, you know, at some point, are, are you going to reach a saturation point? Are you going to reach a point where there's no more space for another cidery because there's enough out And I just say, I, I don't think we're there yet. And if you look at the wine industry, for example, in the Finger Lakes region alone, there's like 250 wineries, right? That's just in our region. That doesn't include Long Island and other Hudson River Valley and other wine grape producing regions in New York State. And that's just New York, right? And so there are thousands and thousands of wineries throughout the country and craft breweries as well. I mean, it's almost like every town now, no matter how big or small, has at least one craft brewery, which is awesome. And I love that. And as somebody who travels around the state a lot for my job, I always you know, look for cideries and breweries and things like that. And there's always somebody new and new products to taste. But I think there's still a lot of room for growth. Yeah, I do too. It's interesting because you could compare cider to a microbrewery, you know, just like in any given town, just having a, a, a cidery or kind of a vineyard-based winery where where you'd have an orchard and, and the cider there. So there's a lot of opportunities. And there's also a lot of nuances in flavor. And, and in my mind, it, it compares really nicely with wine in that way that the, you know, you have the terroir that can really impact the flavor of these various ciders. And so I think that that opens things up a lot too, where you could have distinctly different, you know, flavor profiles out there. Yes. And so, and you hit the nail on the head, Tim, we talked about this diversity of apples. So in a lot of ways, I think about my job as a pomologist and, and we do a lot of work with the germplasm collection that the USDA runs. And we analyze all this fruit and try to understand the chemistry, the different flavors, the different acidity and sugar and tannin concentrations of these and I think about myself as being like, hey, I'm, I'm here to try to create paints for the artists, which are the cider makers. And you can go in so many different directions with cider production. You can have sweet and fairly low tannin, not a lot of bitterness or astringency. And then you can take that and add all sorts of stuff to it, right? And that's you know, a big part of the cider market is that, right? First, it was hops for bitterness. But then pretty much every fruit that you could imagine, like all the ones I listed off earlier, right? People have added that to cider and more. People have peppers. Like if you were like, did somebody make a cider like this? Probably you could Google it and find somebody who added that to a cider at some point. So they take a fairly neutral base and can flavor it to make different types of products. And so that's one part of the diversity. Yeah, yeah. That is in for those who may not be familiar, you know, there are ciders that are 
single varietal ciders where similar to a lot of wines, you might have just one type of apple in there, but most of them are blends where you can add this whole other dynamic to that flavor profile as well. Right. And so these artists, these cider makers can take all these different types of apples, high acid and high tannin, and they can blend them to get a profile that is what they want for their product. They can also manipulate things like the yeast strains that they're using, and some yeasts will throw off more volatiles, some will be more neutral. They can do other things during the fermentation process, adding sugars. They could add other flavors during fermentation. You know, most cider we drink is also still. And so that's a choice that the producers make, largely driven by consumer demand for bubbles. Bubbles are big right now, right? Seltzer water is huge. And and so you could have flat ciders as well. And there's a number of producers that make a still, what they call still, like a wine is a still beverage and not carbonated like a champagne is to be carbonated. So we have producers who are growing or sourcing from other growers these unique types of apples these apples that have these high tannins. And that's really kind of a whole part of the diversity of the craft segment of the cider industry. And, you know, making beautiful, really high-end ciders. Ciders now used to be unheard of for a cider in a 750 mil bottle, you know, a wine-sized bottle to sell for more than 15. But now it's not that uncommon for me to find bottles in that 30 to $50 range where people are sourcing very unique apples, making some really fine products and, you know, things that are really meant to be served as part of a meal. Like, you know, a lot of depth to it, a lot of interest and character that is just really exciting and really based on the types of apples that they're using in that product. Well, I, I know, you know, relative to apples that are for eating, you know, dessert apples that you just get at the store, the cider apple market is still very small, a tiny fraction of that. I know you've done some economic analysis of like, hey, if I wanted to start an orchard, which I do, to be clear, uh, that grew <laughs> cider apples, like, can you make it work? Or is this just something that's still so niche that it's very difficult to do? Well, growing apples is not easy <laughs> uh, commercially, right? I mean, a lot of people can have a backyard apple tree and produce apples for their own consumption, but commercial apple production is, it's a difficult crop, right? There's a lot of pests, there's a lot of diseases, there's a lot of environmental factors that can cause a crop to fail. Climate change is going to be very challenging for apple production. We're going to have more spring frosts, we're going to have in some parts of the country, less winter chill, less time for those apples to get out of their winter dormancy. But all that said, and as a pomologist and, and as somebody who works with growers and sometimes new growers who want to get into this, I always try to say, hey, look, this is not as easy as you know a backyard garden to do it commercially, but you can still be done. Yes. And can you still make money at it? Yes. And, and we've shown that when our commercial apple growers who know how to grow apples, who have the infrastructure to do it, to plant cider apple varieties, you know, high tannin, high acid varieties, that the price that they're getting for that fruit is really high. They're getting a premium for it. And there's still more demand than supply for these unique varieties. And part of that is because of how difficult it is to grow apples. And a lot of these new producers who are making cider 
don't have the ability to grow the amount of fruit that they need for their business. We also have a lot of cideries that are in urban areas. It's not part of their business plan to grow apples, right? Their their business plan is to source the fruit and to make the cider on premise or maybe elsewhere, but to have an urban based business. And so they need to find apples from somewhere. Very interesting. Well, um, let's look forward here a little bit. You know, you've already said that the demand for cider apples in the U.S. is still outpacing the supply. And it sounds like the demand for cider must be strong, given the numbers of cideries we see continue to pop up despite the pandemic. You know, what are the big questions or interesting trends to watch as you look to the next, you know, five to 10 years in the U.S. cider industry? For me as a pomologist, as somebody who's on the apple growing side of this, the big questions are are still, and it's what I work on a lot in my research program, is what to grow, what varieties are going to do well here. So when we look to England or France, to Spain, for some of these traditional varieties of apples that they grew for cider production, a lot of them don't do too well here. They either bloom too late and they get diseases or they ripen too late in the season or too early in the season and not when we want them to be ripe, or they have other issues that make them rather challenging to grow. So we're doing a lot of evaluation on that. And I think other research programs throughout the United States, that's a big question. And really, there's probably a good 10 to 12 research programs throughout the United States right now in different states looking at this question who have variety trials, they're doing chemical analysis, they're looking at yields, they're trying to understand locally, right? Because it's going to be different. What does well in Montana is going to be different than what does well in New Jersey or even New York. And so that's a really big deal. And that's going to really get to this other thought that you brought up earlier, which is like the local production. How does that affect the quality of the product, the terroir? And I think a lot of that is going to be what varieties can be grown in different regions, like what's available now, like what's traditionally been grown there, but also what are these unique varieties that they producers want for cider that can be grown that do well in different parts of the country. And we should probably see some, you know, interesting trends. We're starting to see that already to some extent, and I think that'll continue. I think in terms of the future, one of the Things that we're all going to be challenged with, and this is true for agriculture, this is true for consumers, this is just true of all humanity, is climate change. And climate change is making it more difficult to grow apples, period, throughout the United States. Everywhere you go, climate change is forefront on the minds of our researchers and our commercial producers. They're seeing more spring frosts, they're seeing more hail, they're seeing more heat stress, right? We had the heat dome that went over the prime apple growing region in Washington state last year. And so, you know, how does that affect, you know, agriculture at large, but how does that affect things that, you know, are exciting and, and kind of the fun end of ag like cider? Yeah, like that's a big question. We, we're trying to figure that out and try to help producers get ahead of that a little bit and think, okay, well, you know, climate change is here, probably going to get worse. You know, here are some suggestions of ways to grow apples differently or some varieties that you might want to try that might be more adapted to the changing climate. 
It's a huge deal. I mean, for everything we talk about here on the show, and it's something that's not easy to come up with proactive solutions for and just kind of keep adapting, but hopefully that some solutions could be found too. I mean, along those lines, and I know I'm running up against time here, but I'd be really curious from your perspective as a palmologist, my understanding is one thing that could certainly help could be trying to incorporate some agroforestry into what is now, you know, such a row crop driven food system that we have now. Do you see hope for increased agroforestry and and kind of integration of perennials with row crops? Or is that outside of the scope of of what you think about often? Tim, you're starting a whole second interview now. I know. Do you have another hour? The next hour is going to be agroforestry. (laughs) I'm really interested in all these topics. And so I'm just like, on one hand, I'm a kid in a candy store. On the other hand, I'm just like, oh, I can't get to all of them. Where should I go next? (laughs) Yeah, the interest in agroforestry is growing. We're seeing it a lot in New York State, yeah, a lot of interest from homeowners who are looking to, hey, can I, is there some value in this woodlot I have? You know, can I grow some crops in there? Nut crops are becoming more popular for that, and they can fit really well in an agroforestry situation. There are some fruit crops that do well in an agroforestry. We have a native plant called pawpaw. We're at the northern edge of where pawpaws can do well here in New York. But, um, you know, throughout the mid-Atlantic into the south, down to Kentucky, you know, pawpaws can be found in the woodlands all over. There's some efforts to commercialize that. There's a few pawpaw breeders. There's a few pawpaw plantings that are actually, you know, like we grow commercial pawpaws for things like, you know, fresh market, but also for value added. Apple trees, the domesticated apple tree, can be grown in a mixed forest system. But you know the reason why agriculture went to monoculture is for efficiency and for yield production. And it was just easier. And once you start complicating it, you have to say, okay, well, there's going to be a trade-off. So you have benefits to agroforestry, diversity, and you know, if one crop fails one year, maybe another crop will do well that year. And so you have some resiliency built into that sort of system. On the flip side, if your goal is I need X bushels of apples per acre, it's going to be hard to obtain that on an annual basis in an agroforestry situation. So you have to always think about this in terms of what are your end goals? And what's the purpose of this? And and what are you going to do if you're in one of those years where you don't get any apples because some pest came through and you're in agroforestry and you're not using any pesticides. And this was the year that there was a big flare up of the spongy moth, for example, right? And it devoured all of the leaves and flowers early on the season and you have no fruit that year. So if you're a commercial cider producer, you know, you have to kind of think that through. So it's not a, it doesn't work but you have to be willing to deal with the complexity that would be an agroforestry system. Well, thank you so very much to Dr. Greg Peck. I'm serious when I say that interview could have easily gone on two more hours and I could have peppered him with questions on everything related to cider and palmology and of course how agroforestry and climate change kind of factor into all of those things. In fact, I've already talked to him about maybe coming back on for another episode in the future to discuss many of those issues. 
Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Greg's work, I'll make sure I link to his research page in the show notes so you can go check that out. Another resource that I highly recommend is another podcast. It's called Cider Chat with Rhea Windcaller. I've learned a ton from Rhea and her guests as I've kind of dove into cider this past year. So I highly recommend you go check that out too. She does a great job uh, with her podcast. Also, I'm thinking about doing more episodes like this as I go on down this journey of kind of looking for opportunities in this space. If this is just too niche for you, let me know. Or if you'd like more episodes like this, uh, it should be helpful to hear from you. So reach out anytime, Tim at aggrad.com. I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. <laughs>